Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Sports are back, and we've got a deal for you here at The Athletic. You can save 40%. Don't miss exclusive, in-depth coverage of this unprecedented sports season. Subscribe now and save. Here's the deal. You sign up now, and you see for yourself the creativity, the reporting, and the storytelling that sets The Athletic apart. And if you go to theathletic.com slash thevancast, you can receive 40% off an annual subscription. Sports are back, and you won't want to miss breaking stories on your favorite team. So go to theathletic.com slash thevancast for 40% off an annual subscription. We hope to see you there. Play-in has started. The Vancouver Canucks fall 3-0 to the Minnesota Wild in their opener in this best-of-five series in the bubble in Edmonton. Jay Pat and Drantz are with you. Uh, I'm in Vancouver. Drancer, you are in Edmonton. And look, this is a Canuck-focused podcast, and we will jump into the Canucks in the Wild in Game 1 and where it goes from here in a moment. But you are among the few. You are there. The last time we talked to you, you were in Jasper. You made it to Edmonton. First and foremost... Like, just take me through the weekend that was, because, again, you've got access that we don't on the outside here. What was it like to watch hockey? And I know you watched a ton of it over the weekend. What was it like inside the rink? You know, it was awesome. Like, it was awesome. There's nothing else to say about it. I, you know, other than the tug of the mask on my ears, right, which is something I'm still getting used to, I just absolutely loved it, j Like, I love watching live hockey. I, I, I love it. And the idea that I can watch live hockey with, you know, less pageantry, right? Like, less of that sort of noise that, that's designed to entertain fans on, on a game day. And more, you know, access to hearing guys on the rink say fuck. And, like, hearing referees litigate sort of why there's no penalties, right? Like, you got him good. You got him good. Like, calm down. There's no penalties here. Relax. Uh, you know, I loved it. Like, I loved that. I-, I thought it was just the perfect hockey nerd experience. And, look, the games have been really good. They've been physical. Like, I saw that Jets-Winnipeg game, or Jets-Winnipeg, the Winnipeg-Calgary game on Saturday night. And it was, you know, dramatic and physical. And the Flames bench was extremely rambunctious. Uh, you know, I sort of wrote about everything I could hear. Uh, and then that Nashville-Arizona game, like, the Coyotes looked fast, and they were ruthless. Like, they had their, they got some bounces, but they were also ruthless in building up a lead that, you know, the Nashville Predators never really came back from. And then I saw that Kadri buzzer beater, which was just incredible. And honestly, the whole Colorado Avalanche team, like, those games, those round-robin games, they do not have the same fastball that these qualifying round games have obviously right they feel more like right. exhibition games so but, that you know i was thinking to myself as i watched that and we were preparing for the canucks in the wild and this idea of a buzzer beater like imagine the drama if that was in a series like if oh. you know the outcome of a game was hanging on that buzzer beater and the drama of the replay that was required and i mean it really was a buzzer beater like it was a tenth of a second <laughs> yeah you know, that was that was the disappointment for me was there weren't 
there wasn't more at stake because that's the drama that you get in postseason hockey. And it must have been bizarre to be watching a video review, you know, with generally buildings are pretty quiet during a video review. You know, they're playing music and everybody's kind of waiting to see what's going on. But it must have been a whole different dynamic in a completely empty building. Well, it was, but it was also interesting because, you know, there's a reason you call it a buzzer beater. And that's because there actually is a buzzer when the clock hits zero. Right. And so I could see from my vantage point. Like, well, first of all, let me take you through the scene because Steen takes the penalty, right? And Craig Perube loses it. Like, that was, other than Paul Maurice losing it after the Shifley-Kachuk incident, that was the loudest that anyone has been in building, right? Like, what the fuck? You missed the same fucking call on the other end. Like, fuck you. What the fuck? Just losing it. And then the... Why the sorry the avalanche power play starts it moves around they look really dangerous McCarr McKinnon doing their thing up high and it comes to Kadri and Kadri shoots a shot that gets blocked puck comes right back to him empty net 30 seconds remaining wide and Kadri looks up at the sky and he just screams fuck me and then and then he sort of like bears down and has that moment and I can see the puck go in and I can hear the Avs players go, yeah, before the buzzer sounds, right? So for me, in arena, like there was never much doubt. I think on TV, it looked really close. It was really close. But in arena, there was never much doubt. The Blues players hung around. But the moment they showed it on the Jumbotron, the Avs players started celebrating like they knew. Uh, yeah. In building anyway, I think, you know, and, and I, I mean, you can go look at my tweets. I was like tweeting very confidently that it was a goal. And then I walked it back because I realized that everyone on everyone watching from home was like, oh, my God, this is so close. And in building, there was never it was never in doubt. And I think it's because of that sort of audio experience of hearing the buzzer, seeing the puck go in, hearing the players celebrate before it. Um, just a, honestly, it was a fascinating experience. And then, you know, the other highlight of that is at the end of the day, I also got to watch Nathan McKinnon play hockey. And that's always a nice time. He is unreal. Yeah, you don't and, have to tell me. <laughs> yeah, the, the Avs looked incredible, too. Like, I will say, the Blues didn't really look like they wanted to be there other than Bennington. The Avs were awesome. Uh, I felt really good about my cup pick. And, and one thing that's going to be interesting with these round-robin games, I'm going to watch Dallas-Vegas today, too, is while... I think they're going to start like this with with a much lower level of intensity. I think once the final game or two happens and you're actually battling for seeding and your possible opponents are known, I bet you it starts to ramp up. Like, I bet you if a team's looking at maybe, you know, oh, well, we have to either face the Blackhawks or the calgary flames like i then think you're gonna see some intensity so so that'll be an interesting one that sort of ramps up uh just like the regular season sort of does as you get late into the day all right so you talked about uh, hearing pucks hitting the back of the net and players celebrating those are all sounds that we didn't hear uh from the vancouver canucks last night we will get into the canucks in a second uh but first of all uh, i think we're gonna have to make that a feature that thomas drant's brings Craig his version of Craig Berube into the van cast on a regular basis. I like that. I, I quite like that. I wasn't expecting that we'd be joined by uh, Craig Berube on the pod, but I like that part of it. I, I don't think I, I was just doing angry hockey coach, to be clear. I don't yeah, know okay. if that was Fair enough. Berube. Yeah. Uh, I was, you know, honestly, it's amazing too. Like 
every hockey player sounds the same when they go like, ah! and like every coach sounds the same when they're like, what the fuck? Like they all sound, it, it, I can't, I can't tell a distinct voice in, in, in arena because when you're, when you're yelling about hockey, you always sound like that. That's my view of it anyway. The universe hard, hard. There's no like, there's hockey. no one. Yeah. There's no one who's ever like, you know, who says hard, hard or wheel, wheel in a voice other than hard, hard, wheel, wheel. Like it's never like, you know, there's never, it's never distinct. It's not like a podcast, right? It's not like, there's not like someone who's like hard, hard. And then laughs like me, like, <laughs> like that just never happens. <laughs> we, we need to, we need to introduce that character in the, the game of hockey as well. Yeah. Yeah, the we Riddler, do. the Riddler of hockey. Uh Again, we'll bring it back to the Canucks here in a sec, but I, and nobody else in the world may care about this, but I do, and damn it, I'm half of this podcast, so I'm going to ask you, uh, like, what was it? You, you talked about 12 hours of hockey. You're in the building the entire time. Are you watching from the press box, or like, what's your vantage point to observe all of this? Okay, so this is the best part. I'm in like at the back of the 300 level at the Rogers Center and or Rogers Place. And this is not so different from what you'll see around the league. There's like this bar setup. You know what I mean? Like those are probably pretty good <laughs> premium seats, right? right? And it's yeah. got like one of those little tables and a high stool, right? And the table itself is thin. Like only only three quarters of my laptop fit on. And there's a wire run across the top of it that has two outlets that I can use. And... I kick the stool aside and I set myself up and use it like a standing desk and it's great. Like, it's awesome. Like, I, I wish my press box setup was like that at Canucks games. Like, I'm just standing the whole day. You know, my feet get a, got a little, like, I'm just not used, I, I, you know, look, look, I'm a soft office worker, right? Like, I'm just working, I'm just working on typing stories all day usually. But here I was able to stand you know, taking the game, um, it was great. Like, it couldn't have been a better setup for me. Uh, I'm, I'm basically right at center ice. I'm a little bit high, but I have a good, like, I can hear everything. I can see everything well. Uh, the only thing is that overhead camera, and this is more a problem for Jeff Vinnick, the, the Canucks, well, the NHLI photographer, who's also at all three games. Like, he, him, me, and Dan Murphy were the guys who were in the building the entire day yesterday. And... Um, that sort of can obscure your view a little bit as it sort of follows the play. But, uh, I mean, it's a small eye inconvenience. It doesn't at all detract from what I'm able to see in there. And, and honestly, I love the setup. Like, they've done a really good job. Uh, they've sort of conscripted Sean May, who's the Oilers communication manager. Guy I know pretty well. Um, feels organized. Protocols are solid. Every time I leave, like if I even leave just to get some sun or go for a walk, cause it is really cold in there, you know, um, I have to get my temperature taken again and my bag checked and on and on. Um, but the pro like, just like, just like in phase three, it feels very organized. It feels safe. I'm not, I'm never at any point close to anybody. And, uh, and I love the standing room desk setup that I've got. Like I've, I've really come to look forward to it. Um, and I'm going to watch a couple more games today. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm just going to be a, at the games machine. Like I'm going to be at the games and I'm going to be writing stuff and I'm going to be doing radio hits and podcasts. And that's sort of the conveyor belt for me for the next 62 days left. So, uh, let's go. It'll be fun. 
Awesome overview. And then, uh, you know, that's one of the things uh, we'll have lots of time to talk about uh, Canucks here. Well, we may not, in the big picture, we may not have a lot of time uh, unless they get their act together. But yes. uh, just curious. I, I, I mean, that, that was a terrific sort of overview of, you know, behind the scenes of a guy that has access that uh, most people don't for uh, this return to play. So let's do this then because uh, it wasn't good enough. It wasn't close to good enough for the Canucks. ton of credit to the Minnesota Wild. I thought uh, Dean Evason had a game plan, got his guys to buy in as they did before the break when they won 8 of the 12 games uh, that he coached when he replaced Bruce Boudreaux. And look, we said coming into this thing that it wasn't going to be easy and that really, you know, the matchup on paper was pretty damn close and there wasn't a whole lot to choose between these teams. Like There was, to me, this sense out there that uh, the Canucks top-end guys are going to tilt this thing in Vancouver's favor, and ultimately they might, but they sure didn't on uh, night number one, and I give the Minnesota Wild credit uh, in some areas where we thought the Canucks might have an edge, uh, high-end skill forwards, goaltending, special teams, you know, across the board, that went Minnesota's way, and now it's on the Canucks, and particularly so in a best-of-five, a shortened series, You know, there's some pressure on this team now to make adjustments because they have one goal in two games, including the Winnipeg Exhibition game. And I know that didn't count, but that's all we have to work on in their return-to-play body of work. Uh, The Canucks have scored once. And it wasn't a top-six forward that scored. It was Antoine Roussel in the third period the other night. So plenty of work uh, left to do for the Vancouver Canucks based on what we saw in the opener against Minnesota. No question. And, yeah, I mean, I thought the Canucks as a team looked you know Travis said nervous I think that's probably fair I think it didn't help the start right I thought the Canucks got off okay uh, early on like there was a couple of okay shifts there uh, to start and then that fourth line gets hemmed and Alex Edler takes a penalty and you know it was an unscreened point shot that beats Markstrom and gives them a one goal lead and and I I do think like I don't want to single out Markstrom because you can't win a game 0-0, right? Like, the offense was really what was lacking yesterday, right? So, it was a, I think it was a bad team performance, and I want to, I want to caption it with this. But, unscreen point blast for the first goal. Um, and then, you know, the penalty that the Canucks draw finally late in the first, right? They've taken heaps of abuse. There was probably multiple times where a penalty could have been called. You know, Zach Parise, I think, mugged. Um, I don't remember which defender. I think it was Alex Edler. Uh, there were a variety of sort of run-around wild players, you know, taking with, with some borderline hits, like some hits that yep. could have been called. Yep. But you got the sense in that first period that the Canucks weren't going to be able to draw a penalty unless they carried play for a shift or two consecutively, right? Like, it's the playoffs. You, It's not just about what penalties you draw. It's about are you doing the things that are going to draw you penalties in the playoffs? And part of that is carrying play. The Canucks didn't do it. They didn't earn a penalty. Late in the period, they get one. And I don't know what was going on with Markstrom, but when he's at his best, and we've talked about it on this podcast before, it's quiet around him, right? It's quiet. His saves are quiet. The puck handling tends to be quieter, right? When Markstrom in the past has struggled a little bit more, he's a little bit more out of his net. He's a little bit more active. I thought he looked like that last night, for me anyway. And that too many men penalty negates the, the penalty the Canucks had worked so hard to draw. And that started because Markstrom didn't notice. Like, Markstrom didn't notice there was a penalty. The whole bench starts freaking out and beckoning, beckoning him over. 
takes him a while to figure it out. He skates over. In the confusion, the Canucks throw a se- seventh guy on the ice, right? And that's that's also what's so tough about this. It's like in a situation where your goalie's pulled, like you actually get the extra guy, but two guys jump on when when Mark's in that confusion. Two guys jump on, negates the penalty. I felt like that took a lot of wind out of their sails and just added to this sense. Like the first 10 minutes, the Wild jumped the Canucks, and the Canucks did well, I thought, to, to limit the damage really, right? Like that can be a way that you turn momentum. And you come out into this, that second period, and I thought the Canucks – Played well. Like, that was easily their best period. No question about it. But especially in the first 10 minutes of that frame, you know, they were carrying play. They were generating a ton. Like, it looked like just a matter of time before they found a way to beat Alex Stalock. And and then, you know, the, the penalty, they take another penalty. And I don't know what Markstrom was doing on that clearing attempt, but I thought it was a pretty brutal puck handling decision. Uh, like, just watching it in real time, I was like, ooh, I don't know about that. And obviously Jared Spurgeon ends up scoring and he, and he sort of fools Markstrom with a low shot. I think Markstrom probably thought that Edler had the low part of the net sort of handled. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, he trusted his goalie friend to, to make the save. Um, good shot by Spurgeon. Nice placement. Uh, but, I, you know, I look at that and it's like at that point in the game, right, the the, that goal, I thought, sapped momentum again from the Canucks. And, and you saw the Minnesota Wild carried play for the next three or four shifts thereafter. Like, it took till the end of the period for the Canucks to really find their game again. That was when they were at their best in the game. I thought it, I thought it was pretty deflating. I thought the opening goal was pretty deflating. And by that point in the game, you get to this point where play had been relatively even, actually, at 5-on-5. Five five. Like, the Wild were better in the first. The Canucks had bounced back and were better in the second. And the difference was two shorthanded shots, right? Neither of them, like, I like that Spurgeon chance for sure. But is it like a no-doubter? You know, like, it's a good scoring chance. But you have two, the Wild have two power play shots and two goals, uh, two goals, right? Like, that's the story. That's the game right there. Now, again, I think the biggest problem for the Canucks was that they weren't generating that zone time. They weren't generating that offense. Travis, I thought... Nailed the nailed it when he said, you know, we need to get to the net. They do, but this team also draws a lot of their swagger, a lot of their confidence, a lot of the ability that they have to go out and play that swashbuckling sort of go for broke offensive style from the fact that, you know, Markstrom's a leader in that room, right? Markstrom carries himself that way, and you know, if there was one guy like when when Travis says he thought his team was nervous, like if there was one guy among the Canucks core players who looked that way to me, it would have been him. And, you know, I just think that's, you win, you win as a team, you lose as a team, but among the list of Canucks performances that I thought underwhelmed in the first game, you know, Markstrom's close to the top of mine. Fair enough. And, and you're right. Like we've talked about average goaltending is not going to be enough for this hockey club. And, you know, we had Kevin Woodley on our radio pregame show and he has said this throughout the season about, you know, nobody in the NHL better on clear sight shots than Jacob Markstrom, right? Like if he sees it, he stops it. And then what happens, you know, not even three minutes into the game, a, a direct shot from Kevin Fiala. And look, a lot talk, a lot of talk about Fiala coming in. Yep. It's a good shot, but it's, a good it's shot. the one that it's, it's one that Markstrom has to save. And that well, puck and got through him. And he and he got all of it, right? He just didn't get all of it. Like, he got a lot of it, I guess, is what yes. I'd say. <laughs> Sorry, Jeff. No, that's fair enough. I think that's a, an apt description. Uh, I'm going to go Kevin you know, Berube myself, or 
Craig Berube <laughs> myself in the mirror. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Uh, you know, for me, I guess if there was a, a real disappointment on the night, it was the third period in totality because it's a 2 nothing hockey game. Canucks are still in it at that point. And I'm with you. Like, the second period was way better for the Canucks than the first period. They just didn't have anything to show for it. But you got 20 minutes. It's play in hockey. You haven't played in forever. You know, like, I, I wanted to believe that the Canucks were going to come firing out of the gates in the third and make something happen. You know, get on the board and then take your chances that you can get the equalizer. And in the first minute, Tanner Pearson, who had a completely forgettable night, like, across the board, you know, his second penalty a minute into the third. And so whatever momentum you thought the Canucks might generate, now they're back on their heels. The penalty kill that's already been beaten for a pair of goals is out there. You know, JT Miller blocks a shot with his wrist and had to get a little treatment and the ice bag and the whole bit. And, you know, it was a pretty quiet night, I thought, for JT Miller. Um, You know, we've talked about his playoff resume. Didn't do a whole lot to change that storyline in one game. But, you know, just the trickle-down effect of not following up the third period the way they played the second, take a bad penalty. Now you're, you know, Miller gets a a knock. You don't want that to happen to your leading scorer and one of your best players. They had four shots on goal in the third period. They got out shot 11 to four, spent most of that third period when they were supposed to be looking for goals and offense in their own end. And again, credit to the wild. Like Minnesota couldn't have scripted the third period a whole lot better. But man, I just thought like your playoff opener after four months away and you're that quiet, you go that meekly into the night in the third period, that was a massive disappointment to me. A hundred percent. And what, between 11.30 on the shot clock when Antoine Roussel had a really good chance off a a really nice Elias Pettersson setup, and that was Stalock's best save of the night. Like, Stalock was flashing glove pretty generously for the cameras, and I, I actually like that because when you're a team like the Wild who limits scoring chances as well as that team does like all they need is to feel a little bit of confidence in their goaltender and they haven't had that all year so I think going out and and playing the way Staylock did like he was vocal he showboated a little bit like I think that was a really smart play from a veteran goaltender who just needs to earn his team's trust a little bit and and not that he doesn't have it like I think he earned it after the all-star break but I think reminding them of it I think that was a good play psychologically. I think that was a big part of the game, to be honest with you. And and the Canucks made it too easy on him, right? Like, the Canucks just made it way too easy. Anyway, Roussel, that's a best of the night for Staylock. That comes with 1130. Uh, when does, when's the Canucks' next chance? It's with a minute left, right? Like, it's with right. the goal. Yep. It's with no, the they- net empty. So, like, you can't go that long without a shot when you're trailing only by two. Like, you're one shot away from making this interesting. And there was just nothing doing for them. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I thought that was that has that has to be frustrating for the players and the coaches. Uh, you know, that just it just wasn't close to good enough. Right, and so much talk post game about the middle of the ice and the Canucks not doing enough to get there. You know, for me, I think that's exemplified in the fact that seventeen of their twenty eight shots on the night were from defensemen. So defensemen were getting shots through. And it was no second chance opportunities. It was one and done for the most part all night long. And, you know, so it wasn't this idea of, you know, off the rush, they weren't cutting to the middle of the ice to get chances from, you know, sort of the the Royal Road, the high danger area. That was an element. But to me, it was the Wild were allowing the Canucks to get shots from the point. The shots were getting through 
And then guys weren't doing what they needed to do to make stuff happen in front of Staylock from that point on. Yeah, and and I do think, too, the middle of the Canucks lineup struggled a lot, right? Like, you think about, uh, there was a lot of talk about, you know, Sutter and, and Beagle, for example, right? But if you look at Sutter and Beagle, like, yeah, they were outchanced, but uh, they played a lot against Stahl, and they didn't really get, you know, sort of throttled in those minutes by any means. Like, the Canucks, with Jay Beagle on the ice, were even on the shot clock, uh, and, and only narrowly behind by chances. Same with Sutter. Uh, wh- where they really sort of struggled is, you know, with Bo Horvat or Adam Gaudet on the ice, at 5-on-5, five five, the Canucks were outshot 7-16, uh, to 16, right? Like, that's, that's that zone time right there, you know, that zone time right there is sort of where you end up, you know, kind of well behind the eight ball, right? Like, that's where the Wild end up generating the power plays that you don't, right? That's where the game sort of becomes a little bit lopsided. And when I look at that middle six, like other than Brock Besser, who I thought really brought it, um, you know, Horvat, Pearson, Roussel, Furland, uh, and I liked Furland mixing it up in a variety of ways, even though, you know, I will say that early game fight made me a little queasy, right? Uh, just just with concern for him as a human being, but but I... You know, Green said that he he thought he had something to show himself, and you know, fair enough, you understand that. But uh, it was it was a little bit tough to watch, especially when he didn't go to the box, right? When he went down the tunnel instead, and you could tell that it was casual, like you could tell that it wasn't something he was worried about when he when he walked off the bench. And I tried to caption that appropriately in in arena, but um, but still, you know, that was that was that was tough uh, a, a little bit to to, to just to see, right? Just because, anyway. The middle six overall, I thought, really hurt the Canucks, and especially because Green ended up playing that Pedersen line in Tufts, like for most of their ice time. Like Pedersen's, Pet, there was no hard match, but Pedersen's primary matchup really ended up being Stall, and the Canucks did well in those minutes. Uh, you know, he he did well against Miko Koivu, who had a really good game, by the way. Like that wild fourth line with Hartman. Uh, yeah. And and Donato, like they were a problem for the Canucks, but you know, nonetheless, like Pedersen did okay in those minutes. I thought, I thought he battled hard. I thought he looked stronger on his skates. If there's one sort of positive to take away, you know, we didn't see Pedersen fall very much, right? Like he was targeted physically, and he battled hard. Like I, I liked a lot of that. I thought that was a really good sign. But you know, overall. The Horvat line losing their matchup to Yol Eriksson Ek, and then the Gaudet line being pretty, you know, just having a rough night. It's not a lot doing for them. Outshot one to six <laughs> with Gaudet on the ice. Like, that's, for me anyway, sort of where the difference was in the game five on five, particularly because if you're not generating that consistent zone time, as I said, you can't expect to draw penalties in the playoffs. Right, and, and I talked about Pearson's forgettable night, uh, and it was for him, but it's never one guy. So I, no. I think it is fair to put a little heat on that Horvat line, and, and I think part of the problem was it was so encouraging in the Winnipeg game, the way that they played Shifley straight up and carried the play there, and you know Brock Besser's had this camp that we've raved about, and I keep coming back to the fact that like all that's great, but at some point there does have to be a bottom line for Brock, and... You know, I'm with you. Like, I didn't think he played poorly, but when Brock Besser has one shot attempt, like, that's not him on the top of his game. Now, no. he needs help to get the puck in the right spot. So, uh, yeah, that that to me was troubling, especially as you broke down. 
you know, they benefited from matchups and still couldn't make anything happen. Like, that's a little bit of a concern. So, you know, we get to a point now that uh, it's an off day for the Canucks. I'm a little surprised they're not practicing, to be perfectly honest with you. And I don't want to make this into an Allen Iverson thing, but I kind of figured <laughs> that... I, I thought I thought Wednesday... Like, when you lose 3 nothing and you've got things to work on and the possibility of lineup changes, I'm a little surprised that they wouldn't have taken some ice on the day after a loss like that one, come back, be ready for game two. And then I want, if it goes four or longer, games three and four are going to be back to back. Like I thought Wednesday would have been the full day away from the rink. I'm a little surprised that they're going with the day off already after one loss when it's clear that there is plenty uh, of work ahead of this hockey club. Yeah. I, you know, they're playing so late in the day though, that I bet you they're going to skate hard before they play right whether they do it today or whether they do it tomorrow morning you know i'm sure they'll be skated hard not not like an hour hard uh but you know they'll skate again they'll have they'll probably have team meetings like i've heard about there's coaches who are doing things like 5 p.m video meetings before dinner right because these guys are under lock and key right like there's a whole variety of weird things that are being instituted and that practice rink is from what i understand pretty decent but it's 40 minutes away right like it's an hour and a half of commitment just to travel to and from practice if you've got some players who are banged up a little bit if you want to make sure you're rested if you want to make sure everyone's just like fresh and thinking about things the right way you know having an early morning morning skate on the day of the game I don't think necessarily a negative call and and you know again I think good for our listeners to remember that the things that are being balanced by coaches right now are you know a lot wider than we need to hit the ice because we played bad right it's like you know what do i what what can i do to get my guys best prepared for tomorrow uh, especially because tuesday night's game tuesday night's game is going to be you know not do or die but pretty damn close to it like the canucks now need to win three of the next four to win to advance here uh so this is as high leverage as it gets and i uh, you know i'm not stunned with the sense of the logistics that i've been able to gain in talking to some of the players in the bubble over the past few days you see the I saw the league put out the statistic that teams that go up two nothing in best of fives fifty five and one all time. So wow. yeah, there's there's a little bit of importance in the Canucks <laughs> evening this thing. Oh well, uh, we're think, gonna we're gonna see a team come back. I, I think I think we're gonna see a team eliminate a two nothing deficit. Since my since my VanCast predictions, including a Canucks sweep, have gone so well in the past five days, I'm gonna make another <laughs> insane one. I bet if there's a team that goes down to nothing in this uh, qualifying round, we're going to see a comeback just because the, the league has more parity than it ever did before. Right. Like we haven't seen best of fives in a world where teams were relatively evenly matched. Right. Like the True. NHL used yes. to be stratified. I bet you yep. we will see a team win three in a row and eliminate uh, a 2-0 deficit in a best of five in this qualifying round in the event that we're lucky enough to see a team, in fact, go down to nothing. I think that'll happen. All right, so what about adjustments then for the Canucks? I mean, everybody's screaming Jake Furtanen and Zach McEwen and the penalty kill that there was so much attention on needing these penalty killers and the penalty kill gives up a couple of goals. You know, the door is wide open, obviously, for Travis Green, and he's got to be careful here. Uh, was he the penalty have kill luxury... bad, though? Like, I don't think no. that's... Fin- and right. JT Miller takes a shot off his wrist, which doesn't that actually sort of emphasize why it was important? Like, am I nuts? No, well, you're not nuts about the penalty kill because you pointed out. I mean, two shots. It wasn't like they were hemmed in their own end and couldn't touch the puck. The Wild had two shots on goal, and they scored on their first two power play yeah, shots. They had, so they had two scoring chances and two shots in three minutes of work. Like, 
I, I don't think the penalty kill was that bad at all, by no, any means. But you look at the first one, like JT Miller's out there to take faceoffs, and he lost the faceoff cleanly, and that happens. Uh, and that one, that one wound up in the net. So, you know, the other one, Mott seemed to lose his position a little bit. It was Mott and Beagle as the penalty killing yeah. forwards. But I'm just saying there was so much talk coming in about, you know, from Travis Green's perspective that, you know, this is why some of these guys are playing because you can't overlook the need to have penalty killing forwards. And the Canucks obviously didn't get the job done on the penalty kill. But you're right. It's not like the penalty kill for two full minutes at a time was dreadful. But if you're Minnesota, you're thinking, hey, the power play was pretty effective. So whether it takes 10 seconds or two minutes, Minnesota did what it had to do, you know, to make a difference when it had the man advantage. So I, I, regardless, the door is open for lineup changes. Travis Green told us after the Winnipeg exhibition game, he was icing the team that he thought gave him the best chance to win. They haven't win. And beyond that, they barely scored. And he can't wait long is my point here. So... You know, if you go down 0-2, and I just threw the numbers out there, now you're facing this monumental climb. I have to think that there will be a change or two to the Canuck forward group for Tuesday night. Yeah, I think you're right. And I also think that they're going to need more beef, right? Like, they, you know, that wild team, and it wasn't all, it wasn't all Felino. Like, Felino played rough, Hartman played rough, but... It was Zach Parise, right? It was Joel Eriksson Eck. Like, it was Eric Stahl. Like, the guys who played with that, you know, sort of tactical noose, that hard scrabble veteran game where, where I do think the Canucks, you know, in that game within a game, the Wild were the louder bench. They had more energy. I thought they were more aggressive in terms of playing physically. Uh, that's the other side of it, right? Like, the Canucks, I do think, are going to need to consider – you know, and, and not that Roussel or Furlan don't play that style. They do. But, you know, so does Zach McEwen. And McEwen's also probably a little bit faster, right? Uh, yep. So, do, you know, the, I do think they probably could use Jake Vertanen's speed in the bottom six. Like, those are going to be some tough decisions uh, for Green and company. Um, and definitely, definitely having, you know, some of that wild card element that Vertanen can bring offensively uh, could help. But... Um, you know, I wonder, I wonder too, in terms of that sort of game within a game, in terms of adding some beef to your lineup, uh, I do think Zach McEwen will be a, a hot consideration for the Canucks coaching staff too. And I can see why, especially having seen the game, you know, in building and seen some of the stuff that happened behind the play. Uh, you know, the wild were aggressive and, and I think it's completely fair to say that they took some liberties, um, you know, and that's sort of why, like we see Michael Furlan's now been fined, right? Yes. And yeah. You know, uh, the NHL also decided to find Luke Coonan, right, who had avoided both the spear and the minor penalty for holding the stick on Furland. And I'm not surprised by this. I mean, you were on the postgame show and I told you I didn't think it would be a suspension. Uh, and the reason is, is that, you know, in building like Furland stick was really held like it really was. And the NHL doesn't like guys from the bench interfering with the playing surface, right? Like that tends to be something the league's a lot harder on than they are a player taking a liberty with a, a player from the ice taking a liberty with a guy from the bench, right? Like that tends to be a bigger priority for the league. And also, you know, I think it's sort of an example where all game, the wild would be the aggressor, but the Canucks reaction was the one that seemed to be caught, you know, like that, that's sort of what I mean when I talk about that tactical noose and that veteran experience coming through. Uh, I think it's good that the league's wise 
to those sorts of tricks, right? Not not punishing just the uh, reaction, but but in fact punishing the whole play holistically. I thought they got that dead on. And again, the the whole thing started to descend because Marcus Foligno tagged Pedersen behind the play with what had to have been a six-stride late hit, right? Like it was both interference. Uh, <laughs> it was both interference and charging. And it happened at about the 11-minute mark of the third period. The Furland incident happens with nine minutes to play. But it's like that; those whole two minutes were just a wash because they let that play go uncalled against Pedersen. Like, the Canucks were yelling the entire for two entire minutes. You knew something was going to happen. So Luke Coonan smartly held Furland's stick. He got the reaction. I think the league was smart to see through it and to, to hit both players with a fine and to leave, you know, both teams with their full weaponry as their coaches decide who to play in game two. Right. And I, I do think as Spears go, like Furlan got his money's worth. It was a good oh, one. No but kidding. But $5,000 right. Spear. I think the, <laughs> I, I think the league, you know, if you look and kind of follow the bouncing balls that, you know, the league put some culpability on the wild and on the wild bench. Mm-hmm. And, and they should you know, have. That it, was right. Right. So, you know, they're never going to condone it. Uh, there had to be some sort of discipline, but you know my read on that is the league saying, "Look, Wild, like you guys started this thing. Yeah, he jabbed your guy. We're not going to suspend him, but you know we do have to step in here and levy some sort of fine. So five grand for Furland and a thousand for Luke Kunin. And uh, you know I agree with you. And and we talked earlier about Pedersen, and he's just so vital to this hockey club. And and you know the effort. Nobody's ever, I don't think, ever going to question his effort. Um, and he's such a smart player. Like now he's got a baseline to work with, right? And yes. one of the things he does better than most is process the game. So yep. uh, I, I was encouraged by the fact too, like we've seen him at times get frustrated, get frustrated with himself, get frustrated with the officials, or frustrated with non-calls. I didn't detect any of that. And I'm sure he was doing the slow burn inside, but he doesn't want Minnesota to see that. So I thought he did a pretty good job of, you know, channeling his frustration. And if he can, and we've seen him with the, the rage fuel, uh, the goal against Columbus late in the season, you know, it, whatever it takes to get him up and running uh, and close to his best, you know, I think we'll see a better Elias Pettersson, uh, you know, against Winnipeg the other night, even in an exhibition game. Like he's on the ice for three goals. It's exhibition. It's his first game in months. But you know that that had to burn at him. The fact that his team gets shut out and it's play and opener, you know, like he'll wear that. Uh, I, this is what I look forward to is a motivated Elias Pettersson. And we can talk about the bottom six and that's probably where the changes are going to come. But you can't lose sight of the fact that the top six has to be a whole lot better. And Jacob Markstrom obviously has to be better. <laughs> it's, it's 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 time. Like, what are we what are we even talking line, about? Like, auto line time. It's it's so hard yeah. to find a line. <laughs> in the NHL that outperformed the lotto line, right? Like, it just, you just can't really find too many. Like, there's just not a lot of teams that fared as well with a, a top forward line on the ice as the Canucks did with the lotto line on, right? Like, we're talking about, you know, three players who obviously have chemistry, and the chemistry between, you know, um, excuse me, the chemistry between... Besser and Pedersen is plain to see, like extremely obvious. And I mean, you know, by by overall sort of uh, goal differential, right? Like they were plus fourteen, right? Uh, I mean, that's <laughs> you're gonna, you you really are not going to find too many lines 
in the NHL last season that fared similarly well. Like, you have to look at points, Stamkos, Kucherov, and, you know, things like uh, Pacioretty and, and Stone in, in Vegas, right? Like, uh, Dreisaitl with Yamamoto. Like, it's really a rare thing to have a line that outscores opponents like that. I thought Tyler Foley quietly had a pretty bad game. Uh, I yeah. just didn't think. Oh, there I don't. Was a lot I don't think it was. I don't think it was quiet. Like I. Yeah. I don't think there was a lot going a game, on there. Of the ten that he played before the halt after the trade, like there wasn't a single game that looked like last no. night did for Tyler Toffoli. No, and and I thought Besser played well, right? Like I think Besser's been, you know, you need him going, right? You, you need him going. You need him to get some confidence. We've seen what that group can do together. Um, you know, I, I'd consider that for sure. Like for me, that would be the highest leverage change that the Canucks could make. Uh, I think it's, I think it's, you know, not a no-brainer, but but close to it. Um, for me, that would be the change that I think is most obvious and the one that I think the Canucks should consider more closely than changing the mix on the bottom six. I mean, I, I, I'd probably want to strengthen the Gaudet line somehow. Like I, I'd probably want to try and figure out a way to do that if I was the Canucks coaching staff. And I'd want to find a way to get more uh, from my top six. I think the way to do that is to put Besser on the top line. Like, it's a lot of line time. This is this has to happen. Uh, you're there in Edmonton and will be throughout uh, this entire tournament. So terrific coverage coming uh, from The Athletic and from Drancer and uh, others, obviously. Uh, and this is pretty cool, too, during the playoffs. Like, if people can't get enough, and we've been waiting months, obviously, for the return to hockey, Scott Burnside is going to do a daily edition of Two-Man Advantage throughout the 2020 Stanley Cup playoffs. Scott keeps you up to speed with all the NHL action, plus some of the Athletic's best hockey writers stop by to help break down the games and look ahead. Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, only at the only at the Athletic. My hunch is that you'll be cheating on me at some point and joining Burnside on his podcast, but... Uh, we'll give you permission. We'll we'll make you a free agent from time to time, I suppose. Well, I'll make uh, sure that I'm introduced as VanCast passenger <laughs> Thomas Drance if I'm on. So hardly, don't worry. I'll, hardly. Uh... Hey, how are you going to decide? Like, you're there, and this was all new to you. I, like, I could tell right off the hop you talked about the hockey nerd in you. But my my hunch is you can't be running three games a day every no, day. For, probably not. And there won't be for 66. So how are you going to decide uh, which games you take in and which ones you sit out? Well, tonight I'm going to sit out Edmonton, Chicago. Uh, and I'm going to probably watch it at a bar with Dan Murphy. Uh, and by at a bar, I mean on a patio, of course. But, you know, I, mm-hmm. I think the – I think – my goal is to go to as much hockey as I can go to. Now, we've got three writers here. We've got, you know, Daniel Nugent Bowman, who was, of course, the Oilers beat writer, which is why I feel comfortable watching the Oilers game, you know, more like a normal hockey fan as opposed to a, a close nerd observer taking notes on every fucking swear word I hear from the ice. And uh, and so tonight, today, anyway, I'm going to, after we're done recording, I'm going to head to the rink and I'm going to watch the... Uh, you know, Jets Flames game two, which I'm so excited for, J Pat. Like, I wish I could explain how excited I am for the heat that's coming off that series already. And then I'm going to watch Dallas and Vegas, and I'm really curious to see how those teams look, uh, and especially what the sort of overall tenor, uh, passion level, intensity of that game is. And then I will come home, shower, and uh, and head to the bar to watch some some Oilers Blackhawks. And then, uh, you know, and that's sort of, I'm gonna, I'm, I think I'm going to at least do two a game, uh, two, two games a day here, but there will be times where I just have to work, right? Like where, where I just have to get some work done. And 
Uh, when that happens, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll maybe take a day off here and there. But I'm going to try and do as close to three games a day as I can. Like, while I can, why not, right? Like, I might as well be there. And, uh, you know, there's so many things that are happening, so many things that, that, that I want to jump on. And I do at least want to make sure, like, and we will make sure between me, Dan Robson, and Daniel Nugent Bowman, that we've got someone at every game. Um, you know, I, I think I'll be at the lion's share. Like, I think I'll see it more than... I think I'll see 75% of the games during this qualifying round and, and probably almost every game once the schedule becomes a little less demanding. Slacker. How dare you take games off? I need to know which coaches are swearing <laughs> and, and what they said. Just... Yeah. I'm the swear beat reporter. Um, and, well, and if anyone wants to see it, I did write a piece just documenting everything I heard in arena. And, you know, I've had some really good conversations. Like I talked to Max Lapierre. Uh, before Max Lapierre made his way to Berlin. Do you know Max Lapierre is still playing professional hockey? I did not. In the DEL, he was a 30-point guy last season. Um, so he plays in Berlin, and he's heading back there because they're hoping to get their season underway in November. And I chatted with Max just about if he'd have toned it down, right? Uh, like, Max, would you have toned it down knowing what you know about what these games could look like? And he... he, he took a second on the phone and then was like, fuck no, <laughs> it's the playoffs. <laughs> and I just love that. So anyway, I've been, I've been chasing some of the most famous chirpers in the game. And so I, I sat down to that game on Saturday and I started writing down everything that was said that I could hear just because I was like, this will be color to inform my piece when I write it next week. And I get a page in and I'm like, this is great. This is its own piece. Like, This is fucking awesome. And so I, uh, so yeah, no, so that's, that ended up happening anyway for, for anyone listening, check it out. It's at the athletic. It's called game of chirps. Everything we heard in an empty Rogers place. It's my first dispatch from the Western hub and I'm, I'm pretty proud of it. So give it a look. A Berlin polar bear, by the way, is mm -hmm. uh, what Max Lafierre is. Of course he is. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, let's just finish up with this then, because uh, we know that you're there and you're sort of covering it, uh, you know, globally, all the games that are going on in the tent uh, there in Edmonton. But you obviously have a focus on the Canucks and certainly here on the podcast and your mm -hmm. radio appearances and all that kind of stuff. But uh, you've got your trusty lieutenants who are hard at work as well at the Athletic, the VIPs. They need to be serviced, and uh, Wyatt was all over the armies last mm -hmm. night. And I see Harms coming through with post-game report cards yeah. on a nightly basis. Yep, post-game report cards from Harmon Dial. Um, really interesting stuff, rating guys out of five, like coaches, coaching staffs often do around the NHL. I don't know if Travis and his staff do, but uh, I like the idea. And uh, his first dispatch is up now. Uh, I highly recommend you check it out. It's a good one, too, now, right? Like, we've got the armies. If you want the jokes, you've got the armies. Uh, the, the jokes and the scoops will be in the armies. And the uh, analysis from Harmon Dial in the report cards, diving deep into the performance of Canucks players after every playoff game. I'm really excited uh, for what those two are going to be producing. I'll, I'll run. And, you know, I, I woke up. It was the first thing I read. So check it out. Uh, a reminder, too, to check out our comment section for each and every VanCast here at the Athletic app. And don't forget to rate and subscribe the VanCast. Uh, and if you click on the show URL, theathletic.com slash thevancast, get 40% off your subscription. Canucks are underway. Didn't get off to the start they were looking for. Uh, we're off and running here, the play-in edition of the VanCast. And we'll do this after uh, each and every game that the Canucks play. Uh, although, uh, well, we'll have to check on our schedule because there could the potential of back-to-backs on Thursday and Friday. Uh, whatever the case, two a week as long as they're alive and even if they're done. 
or when they're done, we'll continue to push out the content as we've done during the layoff. But uh, lots to chew on after a 3 nothing loss to the Minnesota Wild. Drancer, enjoy Edmonton. Continue to Thank enjoy you, Edmonton. Uh, make note of everybody that swears, either in the building or out on the streets. So we <laughs> want to hear you. about it. Full, comprehensive recap on each and every VanCast. Uh, enjoy your time there. I hope your wife is enjoying her time as well. And uh, we'll get back to it uh, later in the week here with another VanCast. Sounds good, bud. Let's go. There you go. Drancer in Edmonton. I'm here in Vancouver. We'll continue to do this uh, as we watch the Canucks in the Minnesota Wild. Canucks down one nothing in this best-of-five play-in round with the next game coming up on Tuesday. We've got you covered at The Athletic, and certainly uh, here on the VanCast, theathletic and theathletic.com.